The gospel for this uh, fifth Sunday in Lent comes from John chapter 11. Now, I know you just stood up, but this is a long reading, so you can sit down. And we are actually going to join in reading part of this story together. So much like we just read the psalm, you'll see that there are some parts of the story that are in bold type. And I'd like to invite all of us to read those portions of the story out loud together. Now, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Mary was the one who anointed the Lord with perfume and wiped his feet with her hair. Her brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent a message to Jesus, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard this, he said, this illness does not lead to death. Rather, it is for God's glory that the Son of Man may be glorified through it. Accordingly, although Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, after having heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to Jesus, Rabbi, the Jews were just now trying to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Those who walk during the day do not stumble because they see the light of this world. But those who walk at night stumble because the light is not in them. After saying this, he told them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will be all right. Jesus, however, had been speaking about his death, but they thought he was referring merely to sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. For your sake, I'm glad I was not there, that you may believe, but let us go to him. Thomas, who is called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go, that we may die with him. When Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, some two miles away, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them about their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, while Mary stayed at home. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that God will give you whatever you ask of him. Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one coming into this world. When she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary and told her privately, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she, Mary, heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come to the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. The Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary get up quickly and go out. They followed her because they thought she was going to the tomb to weep there. When Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she knelt at his feet and said to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was greatly disturbed in spirit and deeply moved. 
He said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus began to weep. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, again greatly disturbed, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone was lying against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, already there is a stench, because he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus looked upward and said, Father, I thank you for having heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I have said this for the sake of the crowd standing here, so that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his, face, his hands and feet bound with strips of cloth, and his face wrapped in the cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and seen what Jesus did, believed in him. This is the gospel of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you for reading that story together. You got to say my favorite line in it, although I really prefer the King James translation uh, when they go to the tomb and, and Martha says, surely there is a stench because he has been dead four days. In King James, it says, oh, but Lord, surely he stinketh. So maybe next year we'll try the King James version, huh? Dear friends in Christ, grace and peace to you from God, our creator, and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. No one knows exactly when this tradition started, but somehow, more commonly in Europe than in North America, there emerged a tradition of telling the bees. In the ancient world, bees played a large role in mythology and imagination. They were often part of creation stories in various cultures, from the Kalahari Desert in Africa to Rome and parts of Egypt. Bees were thought of as a bridge between the natural world and the supernatural, even between the land of the living and the land of the dead. Archaeologists have found images of bees in Bronze Age tombs, and the kings of Egypt were buried with honey. Maybe people say this tradition emerged because the Celtic people believed that the soul of someone who has died would leave the body in the form of a bee. But at any rate, regardless of how it came to be, the tradition of telling the bees requires that you inform the family beehives when a member of the household especially an important member of the household, has died. Otherwise, this tradition says, the bees themselves will get sick or die or fly away to go live somewhere else. This ancient ritual is all but gone, except that there was some attention paid to it last fall, after September 8th, when Queen Elizabeth II died. And there were some stories in the news about how the head beekeeper at Buckingham Palace went out to inform the royal bees, some 10,000 of them apparently, that their mistress had died 
and now they would be under the care of King Charles instead. Perhaps it seems silly, a tradition that belongs to a world long gone, except that the bees might understand something it's often hard for us to put into words. That like the bees, we live in a connected group of relationships where each of us is in some way indispensable to the hive. Bees, as you may know, have pretty rigid and assigned tasks that are essential for the well-being of the colony. In many places, they symbolize order and continuity and shared labor. And when that system of relationships is disruptive, it can be catastrophic. Every bee depends on every other bee. Each one matters to the whole. Of all the creatures on the earth, who would have thought it might be the bees who could best understand how we grieve when we lose someone in our hive. No wonder somebody has to tell the bees. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. You just read that verse from the story. And I'm not sure there is a more honest, blunt reflection of grief in all of scripture than those 12 words. Both Mary and Martha, these two grieving sisters, repeat that accusation, really, because apparently it wasn't enough for Jesus to just hear it once. The loss of their brother Lazarus, who it sounds like was fairly young and whose death has provoked just shattering grief, not only for these two sisters, but among their larger community, is the kind of moment that marks life into before and after. Many of us know what that's like. You were one person before this loss, and after it, you are someone else. All of us will know what that's like at some point. Maybe you already do. Loving one another means losing each other, in one way or another. Being alive as we are in a fleeting and tenuous world is hard. Our hearts sometimes get broken in ways that cannot be fixed. There is sometimes pain that becomes an immovable part of who we are. We need to know how to endure that, how to care for ourselves and each other when this happens. We need to know how do we live in a world where anything can change forever at any moment. That's the reality of life. It's also the reality of love. John's gospel, unlike the other three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, spends a longer time telling fewer stories. There are whole episodes in the other three gospels that don't show up in John and stories in John that don't show up anywhere else which maybe is a problem if you think of the Bible as one continuous book. But if you recognize that it's more like a library, a collection of stories that have been created over time and written to different groups of people for different reasons, then it's not a problem at all. It's actually a huge gift. 
During Lent, we've been in this Gospel of John for quite a bit, reading some of these longer stories. We met Nicodemus, this Jewish teacher who comes to Jesus under the cover and safety and beauty of darkness to ask a bunch of questions about his own sense of life and faith. We met a Samaritan woman at a well who has the longest theological conversation with Jesus that anybody has anywhere. Last Sunday, we heard about Jesus healing a man who had been born blind, only to find out that it was perhaps the blind man who could see life and its meaning better than anybody else. Each of those stories gives us an opportunity to spend some time with a big question. What does it mean to be born anew into the life of God? How do we have conversations with one another that matter, acknowledging our differences, not always jumping to conclusions about each other? How might we learn to see or hear or pay attention to the world in ways that others can help us? Someone we might think is less capable than we are actually has a lot to teach us. And so then today, in this story about these two sisters and the death of their brother, we get time to wonder, what does it look like to tell the real truth about grief and loss in a world where there isn't much time for that? Telling the bees might seem like kind of a silly old tradition to us, except that we don't have that many traditions anymore that give us space and time to talk about how to actually grieve what it feels like, and how devastating it is when we lose somebody we love or a way of life that we never thought we would be cut off from. The world just doesn't make a lot of room for that. We tend to expect ourselves and other people to move on pretty quickly, to find closure to look on the bright side, to celebrate a life and not stuck in feeling sad. We mean well when we talk to each other about silver linings and being grateful for what we had. But we also, by doing that, kind of shrink the space that's out there for telling the hard truth. That grief is almost inexplicably painful. That it permanently changes who we are. We never get over it or past it. Instead, if we're fortunate and we have enough help, we integrate it into who we become. But in order for that to happen, you have to have permission to talk about it in the first place. If I was forced to choose, and this would be difficult for me, I would say that the most significant book I've ever read in my pastoral ministry, is a book with the unfortunate title of Torture and Eucharist. (laughs) Really would like to rename it, but I didn't write it. It's by a Catholic theologian named William Cavanaugh. And it's based on his experience of living in Chile, South America, during the dictatorship of Pinochet in the 1980s. During those times, people who spoke out against the government's regime, who protested and made a public statement about what they thought, were frequently kidnapped and simply never returned. They became known, hundreds, perhaps thousands of them, as 
the disappeared ones. And so the Roman Catholic Church in Chile developed a tradition of holding public vigils in public squares to say out loud the names of those who had disappeared. As if to say to the people in power, you cannot fool us. We have not forgotten. We will not be deceived. We remember these people and their names. We know the truth. The book is about how that act of remembering, of saying those names out loud, refusing to let them disappear, is very much like what we as a Christian tradition do in the Eucharist, in the communion meal. That is, we take these invisible things, the love of God, the power of forgiveness, the the hope of reconciliation, and we make them visible at this table. We refuse to forget them. We insist on making room for things that are kind of hard to explain or find words for. We say every week, we have not forgotten these things. We will not let them disappear. I think that's the gift of this gospel story today. This pretty long story about what is, in fact, a very ordinary thing. People who are grieving the loss of someone they loved. They need room to be honest about that grief, to weep with each other, to express their anger, and to tell the truth. The story refuses to let that reality disappear. And Jesus does not try to explain it away or tell them to move on. It should feel better by now or encourage them to look for the bright side. He weeps with them. He joins them in their sorrow. That's what he does first before anything else. And although I admit that I struggle with the first part of the story when Jesus takes his time getting there, what we do know is that when he did arrive, he didn't try to do anything other than grieve with them. They told Jesus the truth, and he listened. You cannot get out of this life without grieving. You cannot love without losing. You can't be a part of this hive without being told at some point that nothing from now on will be the same. So much of us wants to rush to make it better, to say it could be worse, to compare it to something we once went through. And we mean well when we do that, we always do. But what our grief needs is space, room to be heard, space to exist. What shattered lives and hearts yearn for most often is company to tell them that you're not alone. You're not crazy. You're not weak or foolish or somehow wrong. You're certainly not unfaithful. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead to be sure, but not first. First he listened. First he grieved. First he wept. First, he made space for the grief to have its voice. Someday, you will be in the midst of a busy day. You'll be working on your tasks, your assignments, playing your role in the hive, buzzing, getting things done, going on as you always do, as all of us do most days. And someone will come 
and tell you something that changes everything. Time will stop. Everything will fall silent and your life will be forever marked into before and after. Lord, you might think then, if you had been here, this would not have happened. Like Mary and Martha before you, you might weep and rage and wonder. We will be here to tell that truth with you. We will be here to listen to what it really feels like. We will be here to walk with you and weep with you and claim the promise that the God who became flesh and blood will one day lead us out of every hard thing into a new day. But until then, let's listen to one another. Let your fellow bees tell you what it's really like. That is the shape of love. May we have the courage to make room for it and to walk with each other every step of the way. Amen.